Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Today, I am joined by someone I have respected for many, many years, Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate is a best-selling author, world-renowned speaker, and has spent more than 10 years dedicating his life to working with patients that suffer from addiction in Vancouver's downtown east side. Today, we will be discussing his latest book, The Myth of Normal, and the connection between trauma, addiction, stress, and illness. Today's conversation is <laughs> a fascinating one and an emotional one for me, and I hope that you enjoy and it inspires you to live a life with greater compassion. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate, I am so honored to have you on the Sakara Life podcast. I've been following your work for the past decade, and I'm just so honored to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. So the first question that we ask every guest is, what is your mission here on earth? What are you here to do, to share, to bring? I'm just committed to people being free. And uh, freedom implies freedom both from external coercion and uh, structures that would use and man manipulate people, whether it's economic, political, or social. But freedom also means being free from our own unconscious drives that are determined and ingrained in our psyche when we're small before any choice in the matter. So freedom just means the capacity to be in the present, fully alert, and uh, knowing ourselves and being able to make decisions for ourselves, not based on past programming or external demands, but going to our own true self. Mm. And can you talk about where trauma intersects us not being free? I mean, I know this is the cornerstone of yeah. your work and your new book, how it intersects with overall health, which I can't wait to get into too. But can you define what is trauma? So a, a colleague and a friend of mine, Peter Levine, who's a leading trauma psychologist, calls trauma the tyranny of the past. And so... The first chapter of the new book, The Myth of Normal, opens with an episode with me where I come home from a trip and my wife is not at the airport to meet me and I react like an abandoned, enraged one-year-old baby because at one year I was abandoned by my mother. And the imprint, the pain of that and the belief that pain induced, which is that I'm not lovable and not wanted, was still with me 75 years later or 72 years later. So in that sense, trauma is a tyranny of the past. So trauma is a, a psychological wound that we sustain and then we keep acting from it as if it was still the present, but actually occurred a long time ago. 
So trauma is not what happens to us. Trauma is the wound that we sustain internally, which is a good thing. Because if trauma was what happened to us 10, 20, 30, 40, 70 years ago, that's over. It, it never will not have happened. But if trauma is the wound that we sustained and that we still carry, that we can heal any time. Because it's no longer serving us. Yeah. I could really empathize with that story that you wrote about. With, with could you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't necessarily know where that feeling of abandonment comes per se. It's not as clear to me as it is to you, but... You want to find out? <laughs> I don't know. You you already have me teary yet, so maybe we should just go there. Well, if you want to, because it's very easy to find out. But, okay. uh, but you know, th this is a podcast. You don't need to do this. It's totally up to you whether you want to engage in that exercise or not. Okay, let's do it. You'd like to? Sure. Okay. Tell me about your childhood. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and by the way, I interrupt. Okay. Yeah. I grew up with a single mother. Which, with, with a single mother. Okay. Yeah, which yeah. already dad abandoned in a way. What happened to your father? He was around, but my mom moved from California to Arizona. Yeah. He stayed in California. And then my general kind of understanding of him is that he didn't know how to be a good father. Okay, well, that's fine. Um, and so tell me about your life as a child. Well, I actually don't have a ton of memories of being a kid. Like, I don't have... Whitney, if she were here, could tell you 40,000 stories about her childhood. I... Well, if I may interrupt. Yeah. That means usually one of two things. Either nothing happened to remember. <laughs> yeah. Or too much happened and we don't want to remember because it's too painful. Yeah. Well, <sighs> yes. I definitely have some coping mechanisms. My mom was sick for most of my life, so... She was sick? Yeah. Okay. And when she was sick, what was that like for you? <laughs> um, it was hard. Was that? It was really hard. In what sense? Um, I had to be the mother. Okay. You had to be the mother. So you had to take care of her. Now, as between a mother and child, who should be taking care of who? Yeah, I I'm guess. You. I maybe this is part of the coping mechanism, but I, um, I constantly, I remember assuring myself, then and now, that she did the best that she could. Of course, she did the best she could. She's not on trial. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're just trying to find out your sense of abandonment, the source of it, right? That was mm -hmm. the intent of the exercise. As between a mother and a child, according to the natural agenda, who should be taking care of who? Yeah, it should definitely be mom taking care of the child. Okay. When the mother shows up as the child, the child loses the mother. You want to know where your, where your sense of abandonment comes from? Do you not see it? It resonates so much more than my years of talking to therapists who want me to like feel abandoned by my father. The abandonment by my mother feels much stronger. It is much stronger. Not to blame your mother. Yeah. It's only that that's your strongest relationship. Yeah. Your mother couldn't help being sick. Yeah. So it's not that she deliberately abandoned you. But in her illness, there's a role reversal. Yeah. In that role reversal, the child loses her childhood, loses her sense of being nurtured and looked after. That's the sense of abandonment. It's that simple. It happens in a lot of families, not because parents don't love their kids, yeah. or they don't do their best, but because that's their best. 
Yeah. And what do you do? So let's say people are listening to this and maybe this helps someone find or resonate with their own trauma. Like I honestly felt in a way relieved reading your story that, yeah, I don't know, there was kind of this awareness that you had in, in your storytelling of your wife not showing up for you at the airport yeah. and how you acted like a child with mm-hmm. her and kind of were passive aggressive and resentful and grunting around the house. Yeah. Because I, I recognize some of that behavior in myself, but like, what do you do? Like, clearly that coping mechanism is no longer serving me. Or is it? I don't know. So what you describe is what's been called a parentified child. A child who had to become a parent. In order to do that, you had to abandon yourself. Not just your mother abandoned you. You had to suppress your own feelings. You had to suppress your own needs which develops a lifelong pattern of ignoring yourself and looking after others compulsively and automatically. Difficulty saying no to other people's expectations. Feeling guilty when you say no. Pushing down your own feelings. That leads to, what's another word for pushing down? Depressing. Mm. So that leads to depression in a lot of people. Mm. Also, it leads to Autoimmune diseases, chronic fatigue, and chronic health conditions, fibromyalgia, and you know. Are you saying all trauma links to these things, or specifically the parenthood trauma? Well, the parentified child is one context in which self-suppression happens. It's not the only one. But self-suppression leads to all kinds of mental health and physical health conditions. All kinds of mental and physical health conditions. Parentifying a child is not the only way to get there, but it's a, it's a very common one in, in homes where there's a parent ill or where there's parental violence or where there's parental addiction or dysfunction or stress. A lot of kids suppress themselves just to fit in and to make themselves useful and therefore wanted. You know, it's our way of trying to connect with our parents. That's the coping mechanism. Then we use that coping mechanism all our lives. Now, in my case, that reaction at the airport when my wife is not there to pick me up, the coping mechanism is not to connect with her, to detach. And so when my mother, quote-unquote, abandoned me when I was 11 months old, and she did that to save my life under wartime conditions in Budapest, Hungary in late 1944, when I saw her again, I wouldn't even look at her for several days. Now, you'd think a baby would be happy to see the mother again. Oh, God, she's back. No, the coping mechanism is to detach and not even to look at her because the brain says you were so hurt when you were abandoned that you never open yourself up again to that kind of vulnerability. So that detaching that I did 71 years later began as a coping mechanism when I was one year old. And that's what I mean by the tyranny of the past. My wife didn't abandon me. (laughs) Yeah. She just forgot to pick me up in time at the airport, you know. So these coping mechanisms like yours, which I assume the self-suppression that you probably did and the taking care of others and ignoring your own needs, they're necessary, or, or in my case, the detachment. They work at the time temporarily, but later on those same coping mechanisms become the source of a lot of unhappiness and a lot of dysfunction. 
because coping mechanisms are never meant to last forever. For example, you, you live here in New York. It gets pretty cold here in the wintertime. How do you cope with it? Lots of jackets. Lots of scarves, jackets, okay. Socks. Now, what, what would happen if in the same, if you're still wearing the same jackets in the summertime here? Suffer. It would suffer. It might even kill you. So the same coping mechanism that was necessary at one time in life becomes a danger at another. And that's the source of so much illness of mind and body. But because we didn't adapt these coping mechanisms consciously and deliberately, we didn't even know we were doing it. We right. can't just drop them. They become our personality. We think this is who we are. And it's almost like you don't even notice. I appreciated that story, especially like right at the beginning, because you had such an awareness. I don't know when it when you started to become really aware or if while you were doing it, you were aware that this is a coping mechanism of yours or was it in hindsight that you realized that you were living the mechanism? When you're in the middle of it, you're not quite aware that it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Because the parts of the brains that are aware, when you're upset, as I was, when my wife is not there to pick me up at the airport on time, the parts of the brain that are aware, they go offline. Yeah. And the more primitive, childish parts of the brain take over. So when you say to somebody, don't be such a baby, you're being quite accurate. In a sense, they're being a baby. The, the baby, <laughs> right. the, those old brain circuits take over. Right. Now, when she said to me a day later, knock it off already. Which, you know, yeah, I was going to ask you, what was her reaction? Like, could she hold space recognizing that that was, I mean, I saw in the beginning of your book, you, you have the most beautiful dedication. Yeah. The book is dedicated to her and it's so beautiful. Like, does she know by now, either from your work or her own self-work, to hold space there? We've been married 54 years almost coming up and she knows, but she's no longer willing to put up with it. She, you know, she's, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> But that's been a process between us. So years ago, it would have taken me much longer to drop it. Yeah. I really would have been convinced that she had somehow hurt me. She hadn't. Right. But, but I would have been stuck in that self-righteous victim. Yeah. You did this to me kind of thing. Now when it happens, I recognize it very, very quickly. It's not that my mind can't go there, but I can, oh yeah, here it is again. So I don't have to go, I don't have to go with it. As long. And does she, because I think part of the part that's so hard in relationships and marriage, you know, when you're partnered in any way, is I could see her, and I know myself, I do this, or I can do this. She could have just taken it personally and then been a victim herself. Well, th that's what happens in relationships. Yeah. So we perceive each other as one of those victims. Right. And that happened between Ray, my wife, and I quite a bit in the earlier days, especially when our kids were small. And this is that's the atmosphere our kids grew up in, these two victims fighting about who hurt who the most, you know? Yeah. Very common scenario. It was a question of mutual growth and mutual learning. The fact is we always choose somebody to be in a relationship with that's at the same level of traumatic hurt as we are. Mm. That's just 100% true. Wow. So it's inevitable then that these issues will be triggered. And the question is, are both partners willing to recognize it and take responsibility for their own reactions and to work through their trauma? Or are they going to just blame each other or expect the other to rescue them from their own 
distress. What happens in this society is that very often it becomes women's role to try and mother the men and mm -hmm. take over responsibility for making things okay, which is why women have more chronic illness because they take on all, all this stress. And I talk about that in in the myth of normal, is, is that women are acting as society's shock absorbers. And that's why they have 70 or 80% of autoimmune disease. Yeah. And that's why they have higher risk of non-smoking-related cancers. And they have much higher rates of depression, anxiety, and PTSD because they take on the stresses of the men. That's not their fault. That's a culture that programs women that way from an early age on. Can you talk about toxic culture and how you define it in the book? Yeah, so the subtitle of the book is um, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. So it's really a very simple concept. If you're a laboratory scientist and you, had, you were growing microorganisms in a test tube or in a Petri dish, mm -hmm. you had to give them a broth to live in, to live on and live in in which they would thrive and uh, proliferate if the brew was healthy. But what if large numbers start getting sick and dying? Then you'd have to say, well, this is a toxic culture. You'd have to say, what's, what's in this brew that's mm -hmm. making all these organisms sick? Same with our culture. If you look at America, which is the world's richest and most powerful country by far in history, 70% of adults are at least on one medication. Yeah. 40% are on two medications. There was a report in the New York Times three weeks ago about a teenager who was taking 10 different psychiatric medications, which is utterly... Terrifying. Well, it, it's nuts is what it is. It shows just how little psychiatry understands human beings for the most part. If you look at the number of children who are being diagnosed with ADHD and all manner of disorders, anxiety, depression, oppositional defined disorder, which is a total nonsense diagnosis, and so on, what's going on? Well, either we assume that these are all individual pathologies that for some reason are striking a large number of people. When you look at the overdose crisis in this country, last year over 100,000 people died of overdoses. That's double the number of Americans who died in all of the years of the Vietnam War in one year. If you look at articles in the New York Times and the New Yorker in the last several months about this mysterious rise of childhood suicides, yeah. to me it's no mystery at all. We live in a culture that makes people sick, and that's why I call it a toxic culture. And I don't remember like word for word how you define it, but... I like the medium analogy, but just to be clear, you're you're not defining it just as, you know, toxins in our food or just no. as pollution. It literally is like the soup that we're living in, whether it's how we engage with people, how we now sit alone in an office or in a home no. office all day, how the culture kind of defines and often ignores traumatic events and yeah. yeah. It's all that. I mean I know that your organization deals a lot with health and it's related to the food that we eat. And one could, one only could, but it's been done, write volumes about just the unhealthy food that people ingest in the society. But that's not an individual choice. Yeah. It's quite consciously pushed on people 
Yes. By huge corporations. This is not theory. It's just proven fact. It's true. You know, they figure out which is the most addictive combination of fat, sugar, sugar, and salt. The, the bliss point. The bliss point, yeah. yeah. That will make you most addicted to the junk food that will kill you. Yeah. So there's certainly food is a part of it. Then there's the toxins in the environment that you can't even count how many there are. But I also mean the values that we live by, the way we relate to each other, the way we gestate children in the womb, the way we give birth, mm -hmm. the way we parents are advised to raise children in a way that's completely undermines human child development. In other words, the toxicity of this culture has many, many facets. For me, I'm talking more about the the values, the relationships, the stresses that the culture imposes on, on its members. Today, I am very excited to tell you about our Super Bar collection. We recently updated our cult favorites, Detox, Beauty, and Energy Super Bars that you all know and love to ensure that we're continuing to deliver on our commitment to providing you with the best tasting and most nutritious products on the market. These are the perfect on-the-go snack and ensure you don't have to sacrifice quality for convenience. All of these newly formulated bars focus on stabilizing your blood sugar, which, as you know, because you listen to the Sakara Life podcast, is at the core of metabolic health. We have increased the protein in each bar, so it now contains 12 grams. Each bar has 40% of your fiber, which is really important for your microbiome. The sugar has been cut in half, also a part of stabilizing your blood sugar. We have new functional ingredients, things like sea buckthorn oil that have omega-7. They're all USDA certified, no added chemicals, toxins, etc. as always. So our collection has energy. Energy bar is really delicious. It's kind of like this uh, Mexican hot cocoa. It's like chocolate, but it has cinnamon. It contains adaptogenic mushrooms to increase energy and lower cortisol. Our Beauty bars are probably have the biggest change. They went from like a strawberry kind of burst to now these ones are lemon, citrus, and poppy seed. They are so juicy and delicious. Contain sea buckthorn oil, as I was talking about earlier, enhances collagen production and hydrates the skin. And our detox bar, which I'm allowed to have a favorite, I'd say is my favorite. It has blue spirulina that supports the detox pathways in the body and has sesame seeds, which not only add a really delicious texture to the bar, which is blue by the way, but also contains added calcium and vitamin E, etc. So check out the new super bars. And when you get to the website and you check out, type in podcast 15 for 15% off your purchase. I think one of the things that you do so well is you bring humanity to trauma in a way that I don't, I personally don't know of anyone else doing this. And in your, in your last book, The Realm of, of Hungry Ghosts. Yeah, on addiction. Um, yeah. On addiction, yeah. It made me realize, similarly to we did a podcast with the founder of Lunch on Me and 
Lunch on Me delivers, and we support them with our food, but they deliver organic, healthy food to people experiencing homelessness. Mm. And I remember in interviewing her, I used the word homeless people, and she said that's not correct. Mm. They're actually people who are experiencing homelessness. And the humanity that that brought to that, Mm -hmm. because you don't even notice, to your point about toxic culture, Mm -hmm. language being part of that, how you are hurting yourself and others just by the language that you use. But all to say your work in trauma, it made me feel like all of us are just this close to losing control, to giving in to traumatic events because we don't know how to get out. We don't know how to get to freedom. And in a strange way, it almost made me feel freer. But more importantly, I'd say it brought me, I don't know if it's empathy, because there's certainly so much trauma I can't empathize with, but that we all have it. And I think in this toxic culture, we're taught that only very few have trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, even if you do, you should repress it, et cetera. So is trauma something that every single human has? Well, again, if we understand trauma properly, so when people think of the word trauma, when they hear it, they usually think of terrible things happening, like a tsunami or war or sexual abuse or emotional abuse or um, parent dying, you know, some really terrible events. And those are traumatic, but they're not the trauma. The trauma, again, is the wound that we have internally. Right. And we can wound people by doing terrible things to them, and God, no, God only knows how many millions of children are still being abused in this country, sometimes overtly by parents who themselves were traumatized and they treat their kids that way, sometimes just by parents who spank their kids. We, we now know from multiple studies that spanking kids can be as traumatic as, as children who are actually abused, but parents still do it. So there's that kind of what I call big T trauma. But you can also hurt children, not just by doing terrible things to them that you shouldn't have, but by not meeting their needs. So, I mean, an obvious example is oxygen. You know, if you and I were deprived of oxygen, that would kill us. You know, well, human beings have needs just as much as they have a need for oxygen. Children have certain needs. They're born with certain needs. Evolution prepared them to be born with certain expectations of emotional support, unconditional loving acceptance, not having to work to make the relationship work. You had to work to make the relationship work with your mother because she was ill. Yeah. That's not how it's meant to be. Right. And um, then children have this need to be able to experience all their emotions, all their emotions, like with other animals. And by the way, I see that you're constantly hovering on the edge of emotion here. <laughs> so it's like every sentence you speak is just, it's just hits a chord. It's well, so, as long as it's okay for you. Yes, no, fine. I just okay. love that this is the one we're recording, yeah. <laughs> like on video. Yeah. All right. Children have this need. It's a developmental need to be able to experience all their emotions. Not just human children, all animals. I was going to ask you this. We share certain emotional circuits with other animals, with other mammals. So we have a circuitry for love. Mm. Without that, we wouldn't survive, would we? Because if the infant doesn't receive the care of the parent, there's no, no life. Whether it's a rat or an elephant or a whale, they don't live unless there's 
caring. So the, the, the parents have a circuit in their brains for caring. We're born with it. We have also circuitry for anger, which is essential for survival, isn't it? If I were to enter your space, either physically, emotionally, transgress your boundaries, your defense would be, no, get out. That's healthy anger. That's essential that we be able to be experience that. We have circuitry for play. Play is really important for brain development, not just for human beings, but bear cubs and lion cubs and puppies and cats, they all play. It's a part of development. So we have circuitry for curiosity, seeking, without which we don't explore the world, without which we can't live. So we have these essential brain circuits. So therefore we have the need to be able to experience all our emotions. Mm -hmm. Now, in this society, a lot of parents are advised to suppress their children's emotions. Yeah. Those children are traumatized, not because terrible things happened to them, but because they didn't have the freedom to be themselves. And when we don't have the freedom to be ourselves, since we need the attachment relationship with our parents more than anything else, we're gonna suppress ourselves to be acceptable to our parents, but in suppressing ourselves, we lose connection to ourselves, which is the essence of trauma, the disconnection from self. Are you going to write a book on parenting? I have written a book on parenting. Oh, you have? What's yeah, it called? It's, it's called Hold On To Your Kids, Why Parents Need To Matter More Than Peers. Okay, I and haven't I read that one. Well, how old are your children? Almost two and four. This is the time for you to read that book. Okay. It's called Hold On To Your Kids. It's been published in over 30 languages. It's not my work. It's the work of a brilliant friend of mine, the psychologist Gordon Neufeld, who I quote in, in The Myth of Normal. Uh -huh. He's the one who talks about the irreducible needs of children. Yep. I talk about, and so I quote him extensively in this book, but that book, I wrote it with him to get his work out there in front of the public, and it's a, it's a wonderful book. So I hope you'll read that book. I absolutely will. Parenting has really forced me in a good way to face some of those traumatic yes. wounds because... I know, and, and also with balance, right? Because I remember my mom saying that she specifically didn't do things her mother did. So, yeah. of course, there are things I want to do differently than my mother, but there's also things that I just want to do. Like, I want a clean slate. I just want to, you know, might not be possible. But how how do you hold so much space for children to feel all the feelings? What does it mean to hold that space? Well, so it's very difficult in this society. Not impossible, very difficult. The reason it's yeah. difficult is because we're never meant to parent the way we're parenting now. Yeah. So that human beings evolved over millions of years and over hundreds of thousands of years. And even our own species, Homo sapiens, we've been around for 150,000 years, maybe 200,000 years. For most of that time, until like a blink of an eye ago, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups where there was a community to raise the child. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't just a single mother like your poor mom or yeah. isolated nuclear family living in a isolated home. It was a group. And so that children had lots of parents. Right. They knew their biological parents and had a special relationship with them, but really they were children of everyone. And... Um, We've lost that. 
We really have. So that when you say holding space, there's way too much pressure on parents these days that nature never meant them to have. So part of the answer is we have to really think our communities. And how can we create communities where, again, we're more joined together in the task of raising their children? Not to mention, if we're not going to see our kids the whole day, if they're going to go to school and kindergarten from an early age on, it's totally unnatural for kids to be away from their parents the whole day. I mean, no bear ever does that. No lion ever does that. Yeah. Then we have to extend our sense of family. The school should be for far more than so-called educational institutions. They should be part of the village where children are raised. And since the human brain develops an interaction with the environment, and since the brain develops starting in the uterus, by the way, until adulthood, then at every point of the, in that process, we need to ask ourselves, what conditions will promote healthy development and what conditions will undermine it? That means children need a connection with adults and a lot of safety and a lot of love. Well, the average teacher never hears a single lecture on brain development, nor does the average doctor for that matter. Wow. So what I'm saying is that our sense of parenting needs, to, if our kids need to be away from us, as in this culture they do, so parents can make a living, then let's build institutions where kids are emotionally taken care of. Do we worry that they won't learn intellectually? It's the other way around. Right. The more emotionally safe they are, the more the intellectual circuits develop and the more curious they're going to be and the more spontaneously and joyfully they're going to learn. So everybody wins. But we have to be aware of what we've lost. So when you say how we hold space. Now, as individual parents, how do we hold space? Well, by doing what you're already doing that your mom never did. Like if I, if I asked you this question, Danielle, um, how old were you when your mother began to work on her own traumas? I don't even know if I'd say she is now. Never, right? Never, yeah. Now, your children are two and four. What would it have meant for you when you were two or four years old if your mother had began to work on her own traumas? Yeah. What would it have meant for you? I think it would have been monumental for several reasons. Well, you're already giving that to your children. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what it takes. Yeah. You've got to work on yourself. Yeah. You know? How do you define working on yourself? Well, it, it means by recognizing that Getting very curious about yourself. Mm -hmm. So when you react the way I reacted at the airport, of, yep. of, of my reaction here is way out of proportion to what's happening in the present. Get really curious about it. What's this really all about? And then, you know, you might need to get therapy, you might need to do some reading, you might need to do some journaling, but somehow you have to figure out yeah. what is it that makes me behave that way? Not in the sense of self-condemnation. Yeah. But just with open-minded curiosity. Hmm, why did I do that, you know? I think and that so, word curious is vital. Like it's... That compassionate curiosity. Yes. Non-judgmental curiosity towards the self. Right. Really important. Not punishing thing. yourself, not... Not punishing yourself. Or noticing when you want to punish yourself. Right. Because even that impulse to self-punish and to self-loathe is a traumatic imprint. Mm-hmm. In other words, noticing everything with curiosity. So that's the first condition of working on self, is just the curiosity. Well, it begins with recognizing that something is not working. So most of us, we have to suffer a little bit, at least a little bit. Some have to suffer more. Nothing like suffering to wake us up. It's too bad, but... It's really true. 
so it works. Yeah. You know, I quote the uh, Greek playwright Aeschylus, who, who wrote 2,500 years ago in his play, The Agamemnon. He says, mm-hmm. the way the master or Zeus or God created us, we have to suffer, suffer into truth. So very often it's a marriage crisis, our children's unhappiness, our own depression, our illness. Something has to happen to to impel us to start asking those questions. It's so interesting that you're saying it in this way. It's something we talk about here at Sakara. We call it a reckoning. Like we find that the people that end up coming to Sakara and really kind of meaning it when they come are looking to transform their lives because they have this reckoning. Like it's exactly what you're saying. This sense of something needs to change. What I've been doing hasn't been working and I'm, I'm looking for that kind of change. Yes, and that speaks to a part of us that we need to acknowledge. There's a part of us, I mean, not even a part of us, you might even say on a real self, who wants us to heal. Yeah. So as much as we may carry traumatic imprints that disconnect us from ourselves and that make us not like ourselves or behave in ways that are actually harmful to the self, there's still this true self that wants us to be healthy. Yeah. And that's the part that recognizes I want some change here, and and I'm going to look for it, and I'm going to work for it. That's what's so positive here, is that we all have that part. I wouldn't even say it's a part. I would say that's the real us. So even underneath all that traumatic baggage, there's still that human being that is determined to, to become whole again. Can I ask you a personal question? No. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Do you believe in God? Well, what do you mean by God? Well, however you want to define God. Well, that's the problem with the word God, is that it's one of these concepts that means so many different things to different people. Yep. So for some, it's a definite personal entity that sits in a certain place and makes judgments and decisions. Yeah, that's choices, one version. Yeah. You know? So I never believed in that kind of God. The reason I didn't was very simple. My grandparents were killed in Auschwitz. They were good people. They were put on a train, taken to Auschwitz. As soon as they got there, gas chambers, along with millions of other people. As was my mother and I almost became quite close to that. And I said to myself, well, if this is God that's all good, and all-powerful and all-knowing, none of this makes any sense. Because if God is all-good, then he can't be all-powerful or all-knowing, because then he wouldn't let this happen, or she, or they. Right. So that kind of a God I never believed in. As a matter of fact, I used to be very angry even at the word God. Now the question is, why did I used to be angry? It's one thing to believe or not to believe. Where was the anger coming from? The anger was coming from because I so badly wanted to believe. Mm. I wanted to believe that there's something more than just my little self in this world. You know, and the God they were presenting me with just wasn't credible. (laughs) Yeah. To my brain. Yeah. I'm not arguing with other people's beliefs. I'm just telling you it didn't work for me. Yeah. So now, through some spiritual work that I've done, and some psychedelic work that I've done, and a lot of reading that I've done, and people that I've interacted with, 
I do have a sense that there's more to us than just a little egoic little self, this little body, you know, yours, mine, anybody else's, that there's a deeper truth, a deeper reality that we're all a part of and a manifestation of. If that's what people want to call God, then the answer is yes. Mm. But it's almost better not to, from my point of view, use that word because... Loaded. It's a loaded word, and it's got so many, you know, for some people, God wants people to go to hell and burn in fire for the rest of eternity. Right. For others, God is all loving and ever compassionate and infinitely empathetic and, and well, they both use the word God, but they're not talking about the same entity. So it's not a useful word. Yeah. Can you talk about, I don't remember what chapter this is in, but... Oh, by the way, so let me say one more thing. Please. So I was talking to Ashley Judd. Uh-huh. And she was telling me about how once she surrendered to a God she didn't believe in. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the point. Which I thought that's the whole point. I thought that was a great phrase. Right. Yeah, yeah Marion Williamson, one of her quotes, it might not be her quote. She might be quoting The Course in Miracles in her book, but she talks about how heaven is a choice we make in every moment. Yeah. And... That feels very relevant to what you're speaking to. I don't remember which chapter this was in your book, but you started talking about Buddha and the leaf and how the leaf was both an object and a process. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Sure. So it's actually in the second or third chapter and of the myth of normal. And, and what I'm talking about is the unity and the oneness of everything. Now, as a physician going to a traditional Western medical school, Nobody teaches you that mind and body are inseparable. We basically learn about the body as a separate entity and the organs as separate entities and disease is a pathology that shows up for whatever reason in a particular individual and a particular organ. The actual scientific reality that mind and body can't be separated, which has only been proven by, I don't know how many tens of thousands of research papers and, 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 and publications, and which is an insight that human beings have always had, is completely missing from medical education. And so I was saying that this is not a new concept. It goes back to the Buddha, and he was talking about the leaf or a raindrop, and he says, he talked about the interdependent co-arising phenomena, the interdependent co-arising of phenomena. He says, look at a leaf or a raindrop, and look at all the conditions that have to go into the making of a leaf or a raindrop. So take the leaf, it contains the sun, Sunlight, it wouldn't exist without sunlight. Photosynthesis needs sunlight. The leaf contains the sun. The leaf contains the sky in the form of the water that drops from the sky. It contains the earth. The leaf contains everything within it. We all contain everything within ourselves. So he says, without the many, there cannot be the one, and without the one, there cannot be the many. It's all interdependent. That's an insight that human beings have had for thousands of years. It's an insight that modern science has more than adequately proven, and which is completely missing from the awareness of uh, this culture, from the law, from education, and certainly from medicine, which leaves our capacity to heal people really, really limited. So true. Are you familiar with Louise Hay, her work? She's no longer with us. I know us. the work of Louise Hay. Yeah. I, she's an intuitive. Yeah. I'm not. I may have intuitions, but I'm not an intuitive. 
I'm a, I'm a classically trained medical doctor, but certainly a lot of a lot of the things she says are accurate. I don't know if I can go along with everything she says. Yep. I, don't, I don't. I have no way of proving some of what she says. Yep. But she certainly understands the mind-body unity. Yeah. And to that degree, I'm certainly aboard with what she has to say. Yeah, I think the interesting intersection, obviously coming from from different roots, but the interesting intersection is in her book, You Can Heal Your Life, you know, there are mantras for if you're dealing with a headache yeah. and what that means and what you're kind of internally and mentally going through in yeah. order to experience that physicality. Yeah, sure. So when I see people with headache... So what happens in an average medical office, somebody comes with migraine headaches. Well, here's a pill yeah. to constrict your blood vessels so they won't pulsate, so they won't cause you a headache. Or here's a medication to stop the pain. Okay, Well, that's fine. But if you look at the literature on migraine, it's completely related to childhood trauma. Wow. There's a lot of information. Fibromyalgia, childhood trauma. Wow. Rheumatoid arthritis trauma and stress so if somebody comes to see me well i'm not a practicing physician anymore but if somebody would come to see me with a migraine i'd say well, okay let's here's what we can do to reduce the symptoms but then look let's look at what's in your life that's triggering these headaches what are the stresses that you're carrying where are you not saying no one of my books is called when the body says no when people don't know how to say no the body will say it in the form of illness what anger are you suppressing because migraine i found in many cases is actually about repressed anger that conversation is completely missing from most medical encounters despite all the research literature that shows these factors i mean i can give you two examples three examples actually three 19th century physicians all pioneers, all still revered in medical culture. One is Jean-Martin Charcot, a French neurologist who first described multiple sclerosis. 1870, 1860, I forget what year. And he says this condition is caused by long-term grief and stress. Okay? Then there's rheumatoid arthritis. Sir William Osler, who's one of the founding physicians at Johns Hopkins, for God's sakes, and he said, rheumatoid arthritis is caused by long-term worry and stress, 1890. Then there's an American surgeon called James Paget, who's still revered in medical circles, who connected breast cancer with a woman's depression. Now, since those pioneers made those observations, there's been multiple studies on all of those conditions proving the accuracy of their insights. But that's not taught in the medical schools. Why? So if you go to a physician with a rheumatoid arthritis, a rheumatologist, nobody's going to ask you about trauma in your childhood or what stresses in the present day are triggering the flare-ups. Yet if they ask you, that could help prevent the next flare-up, as I've seen many times. Why? Because we live in a toxic culture. We live in a culture that separates the mind from the body, that doesn't recognize the unity of human beings, in a capitalist culture, where the fundamental ethic is we're individual, competitive, aggressive, selfish creatures, we're not going to see the unity of everybody. We're going to see the separation. Yeah. And we're going to separate the mind from the body. Now, that's one reason. Another reason is who goes into medical school? People like me, very driven people who are going to put up with all kinds of stress and trauma to get to medical school. Right. And boy, medical students are traumatized very often. Lots of literature on that. 
they age faster than other people their, their age, cellularly, it's been measured. So they haven't dealt with their own trauma. And, they, and, in, and the average medical student, this sounds shocking, and there might be some exceptions now, but for the most part, it's still absolutely true that the average medical student never hears a single lecture on the relationship of trauma and illness, despite all the scientific studies that I quote in my book. So they go into the world not having dealt with their own trauma, not having learned about trauma, and then put under all kinds of pressure to see as many patients as possible in as short a time as possible. Where is the conversation about trauma going to come in? It's frightening. I'm getting my master's right now in functional medicine, which, oh, yeah. which at least part of the rubric every time you talk to a patient, you ask about past trauma. But, you know, I'm not done yet. But so far, I don't have any tools to, <laughs> to help them with their trauma other than, I guess, helping them recognize the patterns that got them to where they are. You know, it's not that difficult. And I think functional medicine, as much as I really appreciate it, and in fact, I think I'm talking to Mark Hyman this afternoon, a very leading functional medicine physician, the part that they haven't quite incorporated yet, as far as I'm concerned, is the emotional aspect of things. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. You know, and I think that's a missing piece that if they incorporate it, they'd be that much more holistic. Agreed. But still, they spend time with people, they ask questions. It's the individual and your personal history. Yeah. But, you know, let's say rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. Yeah. And I give examples of such cases. By the way, as I point out, in the 1930s, the gender ratio of multiple sclerosis was about one to one. You know what it is now? It's three and a half women to every man which proves it's not genetic because genes don't change over 80 years. Nor is it the diet because the diet hasn't changed for one gender. It's the extra stress that women are taking on, which also means, as I've seen many times, if a person with a flare-up of multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis or fibromyalgia or any other chronic condition asks themselves, hmm, before that flare-up, how was I ignoring my needs? How was I stressing myself? In other words, if they learn, if they allow the disease to teach them, the next time they can maybe do something to prevent that flare-up. So these diseases don't have a life of their own. They manifest the life of the individual. I think that's a huge part of the toxic culture. Yeah. I witnessed that with my mother a lot. God bless her. But it was always that everything from kidney stones to pancreatitis, like all these things happened to her. Yeah. And in a way, maybe they did, but in another way, there's this really robust way in which she was absolutely denying her own needs and yeah. not dealing with her own trauma. And yeah. the culture doesn't doesn't help you get there. Well, trauma is not just a psychological event. It actually promotes inflammation in the body. Yeah. It changes the hormonal state of our bodies. It changes the state of our muscles, our nervous system. It's a physiological event. It's a psychophysiological event. How is it that we're not talking to people about it? You know? Yeah. I had kidney stones at a time when I was a totally stressed workaholic doctor. I mean, it was classic. It was classic. Our last question we like to ask mm-hmm. is something we call light work. So it's essentially homework that we're going to give mm-hmm. our listeners and myself to help each of us shine our lights a little brighter. So what is your light work for everyone? 
In terms of practice, sure, I'll take it right out of the book. Once a week, sit down and ask yourself, where this week did I not say no? Mm. Where there's a no that wanted to be said, but I didn't say it. It's very simple. Somebody asked me for coffee, but I was tired. But I didn't want to disappoint them, so I didn't say no. Yeah. And what was the impact of my not saying no on me? Or in a relationship, your partner wanted to have sex and you didn't feel like it. But you didn't say no because you didn't want to disappoint somebody. You know, what yeah. is, you know where didn't you say no? Because when you don't say no, that has an impact on us. You know, or on the job, somebody asks you to take on yet another project. And you didn't say no because you wanted to impress your boss or you didn't want to be seen as a bad team player. Where didn't you say no? And what was the impact on you for not saying that little word? That's the exercise. Now, in the book, we have a chapter on it. It's kind of stepwise. But if you just did that, if you never read the book, (laughs) if you just sat down once a week and you wrote down, where didn't I say no? And what was the impact? And what was I afraid of? I love that. And usually you go back to childhood, oh yeah, if I said no, I wouldn't be loved. If I said no, I'd be seen as selfish. If I said no, people would be angry with me. So where did I not say no? What was the impact? And what was the belief driving my paralysis around saying no? So that's what I'll leave you with if that works. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for being so open. Yeah, emotional roller coaster over here. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara. And so, we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experienced through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food, plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program, head to sakara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world.